we're going to read from 1 Corinthians. Ooh, wrong phone. That's, that's my burner phone. Yeah, thanks. I wish I could burn it. You know what? I'm going to read that. <coughs> I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. Yeah, yeah. Okay. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. Hey, I just want before we start, I just wanted to comment on something. We read uh, a very powerful verse this morning together, Romans chapter 5. And just that verse 1 is incredible. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the heart of the gospel. When we said we have been justified by faith, what it means is not um, God makes us now righteous and we will, we will become righteous and good people. It is a forensic declaration. It is a legal declaration. This person is not just forgiven. They're not just innocent. They're actively righteous. And so how do we get that? We get that through faith, by putting our hope in Jesus and saying, Lord, when, when you ask me why should I be in heaven, I'm going to point at Jesus and say, because of him. And so his act of righteousness is transferred. It's credited to us. Since we have been justified by faith, and what's the result of that? When we're justified by faith, we have peace with God. The creator, sustainer, ruler of the universe is now at peace with us no longer warring against us, no longer uh, dealing with rebels against his cause. We have peace with God. And how do we get that? Where does that come from? It's through Jesus Christ. It's because of what Jesus did. I just, we read that and it just made me gasp to think what a tremendous promise that is. So I just wanted to go back and, and look at that again before we start. So um, with that, let's uh, go ahead and open in a word of prayer and then we'll take a look at God's word to us. Lord, I am so grateful that we are justified by faith. And Lord, I am so pleased that I have finally found peace with you, that I, I didn't have to worry about hiding from you or thinking I was, I was uh, going to get away with something that you might know. But Lord, I have actual peace with you. You look at me and you see your son, Jesus Christ. What a glorious truth. Thank you for that. And so, Lord, it's through that justification that we have peace with you that we can come and pray. Because we're, we're being heard as if we were Jesus Christ, your perfect son, who never rebelled, never argued, never disobeyed you. And we stand before you in his name. And you hear our prayers. Thank you, Lord. 
thank you that you hear us. Um, Lord, this morning I want to pray for my brother in Christ, Kyle Stratton, um, the pastor of uh, Brian Fellowship in Palmdale. Uh, thank you for the safe delivery of his son, Noah, and thank you for his wife, Tiffany, doing well and recovering. And Lord, I just I am so grateful that there are more Strattons in the world, and would you bless that family? And uh, we pray for little baby Noah, Lord, that he might grow in this family of faith to know you and to trust you and to be justified through faith because of Jesus Christ. So have mercy on them and, and uh, be with them. Lord, I'm grateful that um, we will help them out next week by having Dan preach at their church. So Kyle can focus on his family for a little bit. We ask your blessing on, on that church family as they gathered this morning to worship as well. And Lord, I want to pray for my sister in faith, uh, Joanne um, Sadler, as she's still in the recovery home. And, and Lord, she's not doing well. She's, she's beginning to fade. And uh, Father, I pray that um, even this morning, you would just call to mind some scripture that she needs to hear. Holy Spirit, would you impress on her soul the love of Christ that she has, that, that does not fade, that isn't going away. And Lord, as we have people from the church come and visit her and spend time with her, even though she can't communicate very much, um, or at least not very consistently, Lord, I pray that we would be sharing Christ with her through your word, through our love, through our touch, through just our presence. And Lord, I ask that you would not let her linger too long, that you would call her home if that's your uh, next step for her. And uh, Lord, if not, then you would just miraculously heal her and put her back on her feet. But either way, Lord, we pray that you're with her through all of these things. Have mercy, I ask. Lord, we uh, turn now to your word, and it's important for us. It's, it's necessary for us. Would you use it to cause us to grow in grace into the likeness of Jesus Christ, that we might be more like the people you have declared us to be as you declared us to be just. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so last month, we went to Kayla Krumrai's wedding in New Jersey, and we traveled with the Reese family, and the Reese's uh, kind of hung around with us. We kind of hung out together. It was a great time. You guys missed it. It was, it was a lot of fun. The Reese's are really fun people to hang out with, but I wanted to get some snacks for the morning for our morning coffee, so we went to Whole Foods, and Kevin joked about, I have to see this, this mystical deli that I hear so much about. And I was like, yeah, I do kind of talk about Whole Foods a lot in my sermons, don't I? It was a big part of my life during seminary. So I'm going to do it again, just heads up. <laughs> but I'm not going to talk about the deli for a change. We won't talk about that experience. Um, one of the, after I finished working in the deli, I got hired to be the IT person in the store. Each individual store at that time had its own IT person. And so that was the position I got hired into. And um, one of the things that I did was, was, you know, Whole Foods relied way too much on email. We got billions and billions of emails. It was just unmanageable. And so I thought, how do I cut through that noise and, and communicate effectively? And so my preferred way of doing it was I would be funny. I would make my, my emails kind of humorous and interesting, and, and uh, they would just kind of get read because who doesn't want to read something interesting in, in the midst of all that bland? Well, the director of IT for our region, his name was Ed, he did not like that. He thought that was extraordinarily unprofessional. And he let me know, that's not okay. You're, that, that's unprofessional. And so I just, I was scared. I was like, okay, sorry, I, I won't do that anymore. So I went to bland, boring, you know, vanilla emails. I tried to keep them short, but still. Um, so after being in the job for almost a year, it was coming up time for my annual review. And uh, so, my store team leader 
his name was Jim, he came and he said, okay, so here's what's going to happen. We're going to meet on this day and somebody from the region will come and, and we'll talk about your job performance and that kind of stuff. So get this stuff ready. And I was like, okay, I don't think it's going to go well. And Jim was like, what? He said, I don't think Ed likes me. I, I think he, he's got it out for me. And, and I kind of pushed some of his buttons and this was revelatory to me. This was, this was something that blew my mind. Jim looked at me and goes, you don't work for Ed. I went, wait, what? <laughs> he said, yeah, you work for me. They're coming in to, to give feedback on your, on your job performance, but you work for me. I decide, and I like your email, and I think it's great, and so don't worry about it. Don't worry if Ed doesn't like it. Now, I wish I could say at this point I was just um, very calm and righteous, but I went right back to being funny. <laughs> Part of it was because I thought that was the right way to keep the mood light, keep the team happy, keep everybody engaged, but... I have to admit, part of it was just like, oh, you don't like that? Mash your button. <laughs> now, I, I'd spent a long time in the military, so I know how to pay respect to people who I don't respect and to obey orders that I don't necessarily agree with. But at that point, I, I thought, you know, the email is not a bad way to communicate that way, to make it more lively. So the day of my review came. Ed didn't show up. Ed had two uh, uh, team leaders under him. Linda came, and she came and did my job performance review, and um, it was glowing, and they thought I was great, and everything was working really well, and, and so I got a pay raise, and, and I was happy. And Linda afterwards said, well, let me show me around the store. Let's see what's going on. What have you got happening? And so I was showing her, you know, the highlights. This is working, and this is something we need to fix and that kind of stuff. And afterwards, we went into my office, and she said, Tim, I got to talk to you about the emails. And I'm thinking, all I could hear in my head was Jim saying, you don't work for Ed. And I was like, I, you know, I think it's just a better way to communicate. And she said, I agree. I think it's great. They're hilarious. They, they get right to the point. It's wonderful. It's driving Ed nuts. And I was like, well, I think Ed just needs to get over it. I mean, this is not unprofessional. This isn't bad. And she goes, I agree, but he's driving me crazy. He's getting on me about it. So I was like, well, I'll, I'll I'll try to tone it down a little bit because I don't want to put you on the spot. So I, I kind of did. Ed didn't last in the region very long. Um, I could tell tales, but I won't. He just wound up going to another region, and, and somebody else took his place. One of my favorite bosses ever, Kathleen, took over. She loved my email. She thought it was hilarious. So once she took over, I applied for the next job at the regional office that opened up, and I got hired. And uh, I remember one day I sent out an email to the group, and I don't even remember what it was or what it was about. She called me about 40 minutes later, and she said, I have to learn not to open your emails during business meetings. She was at the national office, the international office in Austin, at this big working group. There's all of these, these IT bigwigs around the table, other uh, IT directors from other regions, the CIO of the company, the department heads. She pulled out my email and read it and started busting up laughing in the middle of the meeting, and everybody turned and looked at her. I was like, I am so sorry. And she said, no, it was hilarious. I had to read it to everybody, and they thought it was funny too. So um, I, I tell you that not to say I am an email ninja. Uh, you know, I'm not bragging about my email skills. What was going on was I didn't at first understand who I worked for. I didn't understand the relationship between the region and the store. I thought the regional office was who I was working for because I was in IT. And so when, when Ed said, you won't send those funny emails, it's not professional, like I said, I you know, didn't agree, but I saluted smartly and said, yes, sir, and I, I, I obeyed until I found out I didn't work for him. When I found out who I worked for and who I worked for actually appreciated it, 
I was able to go back to it. And it wasn't just the position, the difference between the region and the store, because when Kathleen took over and I worked for her, she liked it too. So what it was was I had to understand who I was working for at the time. Who was I aligned under? That org chart, you know, organization chart. I had to understand who I had a direct report to and who I had a dotted line report to. And once I did, then I knew how to behave. I knew how to, how to act, how I, what was expected of me. So this morning as we hit the very first issue that the Corinthians have in their church, division, what we're gonna see is we have to understand that org chart. We have to understand who we're aligned under. And I think the key, the key phrase in all of this is, is Christ divided? If Christ is not divided, then that means something very significant. So this is the beginning of the problems with Corinth. It's this idea of division is going to dominate the opening section up till uh, through chapter three. Uh, we'll, we'll be talking about it. What we're going to do is set the problem this week, and then the rest of chapter one and all of chapter two is the solution to that division. And then we'll come back to the problems with division, uh, divisions in the church. So let's go ahead and take a look. Let's, let's start with what Paul has to say. He says in, in chapter, or verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So when you remember how we talked about the church in Corinth last week, it's not like there's one big building. They didn't have a building like ours where they all met. This was probably a scattering of house churches throughout the city each with their own, what they would call at that time a bishop, but we would say as an elder or a pastor, um, over these churches. And it appears that there is division among these churches, that they're not agreeing in things. And, and so Paul appeals to them, and, and he appeals the right way. He says, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He reminds them where they fit under the org chart. Our Lord is Jesus Christ, so I'm appealing to you on behalf of all of us to have unity, let there be no divisions, but that you might be reunited in the same mind and the same judgment, the same way of thinking, the same thought process, the same decisions, that that's what you would be aligned under. That's our problem, is there's division. So that, that's what's going on in the church. Um, and then he goes on, he, he kind of unpacks that a little bit in verse 11 and 12. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So we don't know who Chloe is, but she has people, and those people have apparently come to Paul and said, the Corinthians are going at each other. And so he, he, he says, it's, it's been reported to me, I've heard this by credible witnesses that there's quarreling among you, that you guys can't get along within your church. That doesn't happen anymore. Fortunately, the churches all today are all in peace and harmony, and we don't ever have, so we don't need to preach this, right? I'm afraid we do. There's, there's still a lot of quarreling and difficulty in the church. We've been praying for uh, Daniel and the church in uh, New Jersey that he's pastoring. There's a prime example of the struggle, the, the quarreling, the difficulty that's going on. So this is really important to us. We need to understand this. There is quarreling among you, and, and it's not supposed to be that way because of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we have one ruler over us, we should be getting along. So what does it mean that there's quarreling? What does it look like? He says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So we don't know what is, is causing this division that they line up under these different people, but it's a problem. Paul, the way he's worded this is he expects this to be understood as this is an issue. So let's take a look at these four people and 
understand their relationship to Corinth, and then maybe we can unpack a little bit of what might be drawing Corinthians in one direction or another, and then see how that might look for us. So the first one is Paul. I follow Paul. The, the way that the word is, uh, is written in, in Greek is, I am of Paul. I am Pauline. And so uh, Paul's relationship to Corinth is in Acts chapter 18. He went to Corinth and he started the church there. He went into the synagogues and he preached for about a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. And so he, he might be attractive to people because they're like, hey, we need to listen to Paul. He's the one who introduced us to Christ. He's, he's the one who started this church. Listen to Paul. Be Pauline. Follow what Paul says. The next person that's mentioned is Apollos. Now, Apollos, we get introduced to in Acts chapter 18 again. This is all kind of hovering around that same thing. Uh, it's, this is how he's introduced in Acts chapter 18. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God more accurately. So here's, here's Apollos. He's a native of Alexandria. Alexandria is in the northern part of Africa in, um, in Egypt. It was a very dominant city. It was a very prominent city. There was a large, large library there, an important place. So he's a Jew of Alexandria, and he came to Ephesus. Ephesus is in modern Turkey. And so he comes and he's, he's heard of Jesus. He knows something of him, uh, though he only knows the baptism of John. He hadn't gotten the full story, but he knew enough of the Old Testament scriptures. He knew enough of who this Jesus was that he, it says that he accurately taught the things concerning Jesus. He unpacked them well, and he was an eloquent man. And that, that's part of the Alexandrian way of, of preaching and teaching. It was in Egypt, but it was a very Greek kind of city. And so eloquence and rhetoric and how to speak well was part of that, that approach. Uh, the other thing about Alexandria is, is their interpretive method of the Bible tended to be a little bit allegorical. And what I mean by that is, is that red rope that Rahab hung out the window, that was the blood of Christ flowing down, that kind of thing. Well, it's, that's not what it is. It was a red rope so you could see it. But that was their approach, was they would find these allegories and try to unpack them. So he would come across as very eloquent, very skilled in his speech, and, and painting these beautiful pictures. And so um, in chapter 19 of Acts, it says, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, he went to Corinth. So people in Corinth might look to Apollos and go, you know what, Paul, he's great. I'm glad he planted the church. The man just can't speak. He's not eloquent of speech, but look at Apollos. He paints these beautiful word pictures, and he's so eloquent, and, and we should follow him. That's who we should really be listening to is Apollos. He's the important one. He's the one that's, that's really doing it right. The next person that's mentioned is Cephas. So Cephas is what's called a transliteration of an Aramaic name. So the name in Aramaic sounds like the Greek letters that spell Cephas. What the word means in Aramaic is stone or rock. So this is Peter, Petros. This is Peter, who is uh, the one that they're saying, no, you guys, you know what? Paul and Apollos, they're great, but Peter, Peter's the guy we need to follow. Now, we don't have any evidence that he ever went to Corinth. No idea. There's no, no mention of it. Nothing saying he didn't, but we don't have anything saying he did. 
So when, when people are looking to um, Cephas in this point, maybe it's somebody they had never met but they'd heard of. We need to follow what Peter says because Peter lived with Jesus for three years. He went with him in his ministry. He was called to be one of the 12, not just an apostle like Peter or like, uh, um, like Paul, but, but one of the 12, one of the special ones. That's the one we need to listen to. That's who we should be following. And that, that's what's important. So that might be one of the causes of division. But then the last one kind of makes you go, wait, what? Because the last group say, no, I am of Christ. That's good, right? Shouldn't we be of Christ? Isn't that what I'm saying with the org chart illustration is we should be lined up under Jesus? Well, I, I think so, but he includes it in this list of problems. And so maybe this I am of Christ is a problem. How could that be? Well, let me unpack it a little bit. To do that, well, I want to back up to the, the three guys we've already mentioned and then compare them to what's happening here. Paul has written to the Corinthians. Remember we said this is like Corinthians C. He wrote to them, they wrote back, that kind of thing. So he's had a a correspondence with them. They know who Paul is. And so perhaps what the Corinthians are saying is the only person we need to listen to is Paul. He's got it all. We don't need to listen to anybody else. Paul is it. Whatever he says goes, and that's the way it is. And some other folks are lining up under Apollos and go, no, man, Apollos is better at this. We're going to follow just Apollos. Or Cephas, we're going to just, whatever Peter says, man, that goes. And instead, what they should be looking at is, what is Paul teaching us about Jesus? What is Apollos teaching us about Jesus? What is Peter telling us about Jesus? Listen to them. And so instead of lining up under an individual teacher and saying this is the right way, we should be embracing all of them as they're faithful with the word. So then what does that mean for I follow Christ? How could that be a bad thing? Well, I think it can be a problem because you could say, I don't need anybody else. I don't need anybody to tell me anything. I got my Bible, and it's me and Jesus, and that's it. So when they say, I am of Christ, they might be saying, I don't need the rest of the church. I don't need the rest of the body of Christ. I have all I need, and it's just me and Jesus, and we'll figure it out together. And that can be a real problem, too, because what we'll find out as we go through 1 Corinthians is God has given to the church gifts, People are gifted in different ways. So this I am of Christ person, what he's saying is, number one, I don't need those other gifts. God has given Paul a great gift. God has given Apollos a great gift. God has given Cephas a great gift. I don't need those. Those aren't for me. The other thing he's saying is God has given me a gift, and they don't get it. It's just for me. Well, what we'll find when we get to the spiritual gifts is God gives you a spiritual gift for the church, not for yourself. So this I am of Christ person is really kind of, if we're reading this right, it's kind of dangerous because they don't want anything to do with the rest of the church. Everybody else is wrong. I'm right. I don't need anything. And that could be the division. That could be what's going on because we do need each other. We shouldn't line up under one particular person so much that we don't listen to anybody else. You know me. I'm a big Tim Keller fan. Um, When I talk with the guys, the other pastors I hang out with, they always say, ah, 15 minutes, 14 seconds. That's how long it took Tim to make a Tim Keller reference. But I don't line up and say, all I need is Tim Keller. I I recognize there are areas where I disagree strongly with Tim Keller. Uh, he He baptizes babies. I think that is an incorrect approach to the Bible. He is all millennial. He doesn't think Jesus is going to reign on this physical earth. I don't agree with that. I think those are wrong ideas. I've heard him even be a little kind of condescending to us mere Baptists. 
And I, that really mashed the button with me. I was like, I've never heard Tim do that. But So I, I don't say all I need is Tim Keller, and that's all I'm going to read. Or uh, more popular in this area, um, John MacArthur. John MacArthur is a fantastic Bible teacher. He's been faithful for years. He teaches wonderfully. It would be wrong to say all I'm going to listen to is John MacArthur. Nobody else. I don't need anybody else. You're saying there are no other uh, gifts anywhere in the church except for, for John. So this is the danger we can have is to line up under what you could call celebrity pastors. Um, I don't think they're necessarily celebrity pastors. I have a special category for that, um, for what that means. But they are kind of big names, right? They do all the, the uh, conferences, and they have big churches, and they have radio ministries and, and that kind of thing. And so they're kind of celebrity status. If I can just go for a second, there is a celebrity pastor who I think is dangerous. And that's the ones who um, dress in the coolest, hippest fashions. They had the, the, the professionally coiffed hair. And Justin Bieber went to their church. Oh, my gosh. Like, that's some sort of big deal. Like, you know, somehow Justin Bieber makes them. But they're seen in the right places, and they're going to the right clubs, and they're eating at the right restaurants, and they're wearing the right clothes. And so nobody ever gets around to saying, are they teaching Christ? Are they teaching us who Jesus is? Yeah, kind of watered down, wishy-washy, but boy, they're sure. I think that's what I think of as a celebrity pastor. And that can be really dangerous because you're just enamored of their style and all of that instead of going, what are they telling me? So that's why I'm attracted to Tim Keller. I think he, when he tells me about Jesus, I think he does it well. That's why I'm attracted to John MacArthur. When John handles the word, I think he does it well. That's why I listen to John Piper's because when he teaches, I think he teaches well. R.C. Sproul, I could keep listing these, these teachers that I like to listen to. I think they do it well, rather than, hey, they just got the great style, and, and famous people go to their church, so they must be right. That's the danger we face with saying, I am of this, I am of that. Um, so let's, let's take the next uh, phrase, because this will help us to understand where those divisions are and where they might possibly supposed to be. Verse 13, I think, is the big one. He says, is Christ divided? That is the deal-breaker question. When you say, I am of Paul, and I don't need anybody else, what you're saying is the only piece of Jesus you need is the piece that, that Paul is going to tell you about. Forget everybody else. What Apollos is talking about, he's talking about Jesus faithfully. I don't need that part of Jesus. We're beginning to break Jesus up into pieces, and I only need this bit or that bit. That's all I'm after. Is Christ divided? I only follow John MacArthur. So that's the only person I ever listened to. Therefore, everybody else is, is in a, you know, they might not be wrong, but I just don't need them. Is Christ divided? You know, I, I go to Trinity, and, and every other church in the entire universe is, is bad. Is Christ divided? If we've lined up under that org chart correctly, Jesus is the, the head. He is the 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 leader of all of these people, all of these names that we know of, and we're all underneath him. Christ is not divided. The church should not be divided in that way. We should line up under who Jesus is, and then we look to these teachers and say, are they leading me more towards who Jesus is, or are they leading me more towards who they are? And if they're not leading me towards Jesus, if they're leading me towards their brand or their style or, or their ministry or the books that they wrote and they're not pointing me towards Christ, that's a problem because Jesus is not divided. He, he's not broken up. Is Christ divided? 
No, is what the expected answer is. And then he says, was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? What Jesus can and has done for us is he has justified us. Through his righteous life, he has imputed that to us. He's made it available to us. That's only Jesus can do that. That's the only thing that, that we can't get from anybody else is Jesus' righteousness. So was Paul crucified for you? Did Paul take your sins on himself, die for those sins, and rise again to life? No, Paul didn't do that. Jesus did that. So Jesus isn't divided. You should be lining up with the one who can save you, the one who can deal with that, who can give you justification by faith. And Paul, when he's at his best, is pointing at Jesus and saying, that, that's where you need to go. Go find Jesus. Let me introduce you to Jesus. Let me walk you up to him. Let me help you form Christ in you. That's when it's right. Paul was not crucified for us. Paul can't be crucified for us. Were we baptized into Paul's name? Baptism now is going to become a, a, a pretty big issue in these next few verses. But he's saying, you weren't baptized into me. You were baptized into Christ. Because when we baptize somebody, the formula Jesus gave us was to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptize in the name of the Trinity. The Trinity brought to us, explained to us, shown to us by the eternally begotten Son who was forever with the Father and introduces us and sends us the Spirit. That's who we're baptized into. That's who we get through Jesus Christ. And so when we're aligned correctly, when we understand the relationship, we go, that's who I'm lined up with. That's who I'm under the arc chart with. So baptism, the way he looks at this is baptism should be a source of unity for us. It should be a touchstone for us going, it reminds us who we're with. And so he goes on and he, he in verses 14 through 16, he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and, and Gaius. So he's not counting. He doesn't have uh, notches on his Bible, who, how many baptizings he got that week and how many conversions. He says, I didn't, I didn't baptize. Well, I baptized those two. So who's Crispus? Well, Crispus was actually the ruler of the synagogue in, um, in Corinth. So Acts 18, it says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Many of the Corinthians believed and were baptized. How many did Paul baptize of those? Two, Crispus and Gaius. And he goes, oh, wait a minute. Uh, like, uh, I, let me back up for a second. I forgot. I baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember who I baptized. In other words, Paul is saying baptism is not what's most important here. It is important, but it's not most important. So what we'll do next week is I just want to approach it as Paul approaches baptism here. Next week, we'll do a deep dive into baptism. We'll take a look at what the scriptures overall say baptism is, what it isn't, what it does, what it doesn't do, that kind of thing. But right now, I want you to see that the question in it going on here is that disunity, that, that loyalty to one man or one brand or, or one type instead of loyalty to Christ. And the answer for that is your baptism. It's a source of our unity. Even though there's division in the church over baptism, and we will cover that next week, we'll talk about some of that. But because you were baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we have that unity. There, are, there is a place where we can stand together. Now, when I say that, I have to say that there are things over which we can't be united. There, there is a place for division. Paul is not saying never be divided from anybody. If they put the name of Jesus on anything, you have to go with it. Because when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he's going to say, 
Um, I hear that there's divisions among you, and in part I believe it because there must be divisions so we know who's, who's accepted. So there are doctrines, there are certain important things in which we cannot be unified with somebody else. Guess what the most important one is? Baptism. What? No, it's Jesus. It's who Jesus is. The most important thing is we have to be in agreement of who Jesus is. Baptism teaches that because it's in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we have to say the Trinity is a non-negotiable. The, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit being one God in three persons, that's a non-negotiable. We can't unite with somebody who doesn't believe that, who doesn't teach that. There are others. But the point is we need wisdom and grace as we try to figure out where those lines are. Can we align with this person or that person if they have a different view on this or that? And that takes grace and patience and, and a lot of time in the word and that kind of thing because there are some that we're not going to align with. So if I can pick on baptism again for a second. We could be unified with all sorts of different churches, but when the first person brings a baby up and says, I want my baby baptized, we have to make a decision, don't we? We have to say either it's okay and right and appropriate to baptize the baby, or we have to say we'll wait till the child grows and has a credible profession of faith. We're going to have to make that decision. And so what you wind up with is there are divisions within the church because there are some things we just, if we don't agree on them, we can't practice together. We, we can't hang out together. Should a woman be a pastor or an elder within a church? That's a big question. We talked about that recently. Should a woman be in that kind of a position? Well, at some point, your church is going to have to say yes or no. Because when Pastor Karen steps up to preach the sermon, you have to decide what you're going to do about it. And so if you say yes, you're going to go this way. If you say no, you're going to go that way. There are some things that are practical that we just can't unite on. And one of the critiques of the Reformation from Rome was Rome said, as soon as you split up, as soon as you start doing this, you're just going to fracture into a thousand different churches. Well, look at Rome. We are united. We are one. We're one solid church. I dare you to go to a Roman Catholic church in Boston, in Rio, and in Ireland and tell me that they're one church. They're very different. They're, they're very different. The only thing that holds them together is they have a banner over top of it that says Catholic. But when it comes down to the practice, they're very different churches. At least within Protestantism, we're honest. <laughs> when you come to the church, it doesn't say one holy Catholic and apostolic church. It says Baptist or it says Presbyterian. And so you kind of get the idea of what's going on. But where I, where I would disagree with Rome over this, you Protestants are splitting up, is are we at war with the Southern Baptist Church? We're evangelical free. Are we throwing stones at, at Southern Baptists? No, they're our brothers in Christ. We don't have a problem with that. Are we angry at uh, some other denomination? Are we, we, we're, we're really mad at the Presbyterian Church in America because they baptize babies, and we will have nothing to do with them, and we hate them. And No, we're unified with them. If, if, we, if we had to defend some doctrine, we would lock arms with these people over those things that we agree in. So I think Rome overplays it when they say that division is the problem. That's not what Paul is saying, is you should never have any division over anything at any time. What he's saying is we have to be united in the important things, which is Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that we have to be functionally the same church everywhere. We can have differences. What we have to do, though, is see that org chart and recommend, recognize who's at the top. We're under Christ. And so we have to have grace and, and patience with those we disagree with with people who practice things that we don't necessarily agree with. And then, like I said, there, 
comes a time where we have to say, did they cross a line? To, do we have to break fellowship with them? Um, I think sometimes we can be a little too quick to that. We need to have a little bit more grace. Um, not saying they're right or we agree, but at least we can just kind of go with that. So this is what he's talking about. And, and, and our baptism in the midst of that is what, even though we disagree with those who baptize babies, we should say baptism is what unites us because that's what identifies us with that head under whom which we are aligned as we've all been baptized into Christ, whether as infants or grownups or as, as uh, um, teenagers or whatever it was, that's our alignment. That's who we are as we are in Christ. Jesus is not divided. And so in verse 17, he goes, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be empty of its power. So Paul says, in the midst of all of this, you should look to baptism as a source of your unity, but not as a source of your salvation. I didn't come to baptize. I came to preach Christ. I want you to know who Jesus is, first and foremost. And not with eloquent, flowery words. There's nothing wrong with that. There are preachers who tell wonderful stories and are much better at this than I am. There's nothing wrong with that, unless that's what they're relying on, is if I can just flower everything up and make it all interesting and entertaining for 30 minutes and you never notice that I never got around to who Jesus is. That, that's when it's a problem. I didn't come to baptize, and I didn't come to, to use flowery language and, and eloquent stories and, and great analogies, though they're good in the right place. I came to preach Christ because I don't want the power of the cross to be emptied. The most important thing is that Jesus has suffered and died for our sins, that he rose again. And that can be stated by the simplest of us. It can be stated in very simple terms. We don't need great, huge analogies to understand that. That's the source of our unity. That's why he draws us back to that. That's where we're united in Christ is he's our, our, our head. So when it comes down to this, if we understand ourselves as being aligned to Christ, then we look sideways at the brothers and sisters around us a little differently, don't we? I'm not working for them. I'm working for Jesus. And since I'm working for Jesus and his commission to me is make disciples, my goal is to help you understand who Jesus is better, not think what a wonderful person I am. I, I can testify I'm not a wonderful person, and I have witnesses. Instead, what I want you to know is who Jesus is. And, and if I've done my job right, I'm pointing and saying, look to the cross. Look to the power of the cross. Jesus has made it possible for all of us to be here this morning, to be united across all sorts of different lines. We are not divided in the way that the Corinthian church was. But there's that danger. There's that possibility that what we think is most important, the mission that our church has is most important, and if you don't agree with it, well, we want nothing to do with you. Is Christ divided? This one doctrine, this doctrine that we think is central and, and it's really important, oh, yeah, it's not Jesus or justification by faith, or, but we think it's really important, and therefore we want nothing to do with you. Is Christ divided? He's not, and we're united in him. So understand who your head is, you, you work for Jim, not for Ed. And Jim, in this case, uh, he would be pleased to, to hear this, I think, is in this illustration represents Jesus. He's our, he's our head. So though we have other people around us, they're not who we, we have to report to. We report to who Jesus is. And, and that's, that's what Paul's point is. So as he goes into the rest of the chapter, he's going to elevate the, the cure for this division He's going to spend, like I said, the other half of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 
elevating who Jesus is. The proclamation of the gospel, the centrality of the gospel, so that when he gets to chapter 3, he can come back to that division and go, now put it in the right perspective, you guys, and get along. Hug and make up. We, we're one in Christ. So that's, that's our, our, our goal. That's our, our, our takeaway from this is you're not of Paul or Apollos or anything. You don't know who those guys are. All right, so Paul, we've got, he wrote most of the New Testament. We could say I'm Pauline in that way. Peter, he's written a couple of epistles in here. He features really big in the Gospels. He features really big in the first part of Acts. You could say, oh, yeah, I'm more Petering. Um, Apollos, if I can just kind of show my heresy card a little bit here, I think Apollos probably wrote Hebrews. I got no way to prove it. Um, but I, that's just my take because it's, it tends to be a little allegorical at times. Melchizedek, he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace, and, and that compares to Christ. That sounds Alexandrian to me, but I can't prove it doesn't matter we don't have to worry about lining up one of those guys what we have to do is take all of the word together all of it not just your favorites i'm going to stick with romans and everything else i'm not going to read you're getting a distorted picture we need all of this together we need all of the gifts that god has given to the church together we need all of the scriptures together because none of us are complete in and of ourselves that's good news folks can you imagine if you had to be complete in and of yourself i'm just going to hang out at home and be in, and be a christian all by myself you're missing so much of what God's doing. You're missing out on a whole bunch. So let's not be divided in that way. Let's be divided correctly, but not in that way. Let's look to who can we learn from, who can we see Christ working in and, and reach to, into those places and, and find unity with those folks. And let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we have peace with God because we've been justified by faith through you, because of what you've done. We have peace with God in and through you. And Lord, that message is such a source of unity, such a source of hope, such a source of commonality amongst our churches. Lord, would I pray that those churches in the valley who hold that to be most important, our justification by faith in Christ, Lord, I pray that we would find more unity, more harmony, that we would preach more fervently the gospel of Jesus Christ, not worrying about who's baptized, but, Lord, to preach the gospel and focus on that. And Lord, would you cause that? I thank you for the unity and the harmony we have in this church body. I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would preserve and amplify it. Um, and, Lord, I, I pray that we as believers, individual believers in this church, that we would live according to that, that we are not of Paul or not of Tim, or not of Dan, but Lord, we are all of Christ. And we thank you for that, the harmony that we do experience. Lord, be blessed, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.